Cosmic Treadmill episode number 131 when we go back, back to, the to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by calibrating your time scan to Sunday morning at 9 Eastern Standard Time. Mm-hmm. What do we, we got for them today? Something very bloody and gory, I hear. Well, look out, because dinosaurs attack! Whoa! Number, number one. <laughs> this is cover dated July 2013, published by IDW. It was written and created by Gary Garani. Or, are we saying Garani or Gerani? I could do either. Okay, we'll do Garani. Mm-hmm. Uh, with art by Herb Trimp, uh, paintings by Earl Norum, inks by George Freeman... It was remastered by Tom Ziuko, uh, letters by Ron Munns and Gilberto Lascano, uh, covered by Ed Norum, uh, Earl Norum. Uh, the original edits by Valerie Jones and Greg Baisden. The IEC IDW series is edited by Chris Schraff, and it came to us with a cover price of $3.99. Yeah, we'll come to learn in a minute that this is actually a reprint or reissue. Remaster, yeah. yeah. remaster of it. We'll, we'll, we'll learn all about it in just a moment, but of course, first we got to... Uh, Dispense with some biographical information. Gary Garani was born October 5th, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan, as so many comics creators seem to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1977, Gary wrote the first book with a full-color photo insert about television, science fiction, and fantasy titled Fantastic Television and published by Crown Paperbacks. He told Mondo-Digital.com, the first book on horror movies was 1967's An Illustrated History of the Horror Film, and Carlos Clarence briefly mentions The Twilight Zone, along with some other sci-fi TV series, and says something like, The charting of that considerable territory belongs elsewhere. I knew when I read that that I was going to be the charter that charter someday. I'd been watching these shows my whole life, and there was very little written about them. Fantastic television had the virtue of being the first book of its kind, and it was quite well-received in its day. A few years later, VCRs came along, and fans used the book's episode guides as checklists for the various shows they were taping. So Fantastic Television did a lot for me, and I'm very happy about that. Do you imagine a time where, uh, like, there were so few books on a certain subject? Yeah, yeah you, you really the <laughs> when only... you have the yeah, you there... have the corner on that. I know, amazing. <laughs> and now we have a lot of blogs out there, and in discussing blogs, we're going to look at a post that he uh, that was at wearecontrollingtransmission.blogspot.com, where Gary explained the genesis of this book. He says. In my late teens and early 20s, I wrote quite a bit for magazines, newspapers, fanzines, whatever venue happened to be available. 
One of my regular haunts was The Monster Times, a bi-weekly tabloid published by Brill and Waldstein, uh, who had designed FM and its later in its later years. My first job for the Monster Times was impersonating the creature from the Black Lagoon in a fictional autobiography for their issue 6 cover story. When Star Trek syndicated revival hit big, I proposed a special TV sci-fi issue, which would enable them to jump on the Trek bandwagon without paying a cent to Paramount, since other shows would be overviewed as well. First and foremost in my thoughts was The Outer Limits, which I felt was ready for a major pop cultural reevaluation. the show being a darker, thinking man Star Trek, and with outrageously photogenic creatures that appealed to profit-minded publishers. Yeah, yeah, space monsters. I can remember Larry Brill wailing. Uh, yep, that's, that's what they were, and they sure helped me sell a number of Outer Limits articles back in the day. <laughs> that show was full of some pretty goofy-looking stuff. monsters, yeah. as I recall. <laughs> Uh, He also detailed some of the process for this book. He says, In no time I became totally overwhelmed by this massive, seemingly endless project. Dealing with all the photos and a dozen uh, essays was bad enough, but those lousy episode guides. It was murder getting all that information. A hell of my own making. Listen to this, Chris. Sometimes I'd have to travel to obscure cities to pull credits off the screen during local telecasts. Wild. Harmony eventually... (laughs) There's no other way to do it. It's amazing. Uh, Harmony eventually brought Paul H. Schulman to help me get the project finished. Paul was a psychiatrist in training, which puts the entire experience in perspective. I remember getting very, very annoyed when the promised color section was pulled at the last minute, and I was never nuts about designer Ken Sansone's nonstop silhouetting. Still, my original concept for the book was pretty much followed. I wanted a screen-world-like approach to the episode listings, with at least three small photos within TV tube shapes across the upper portion of the page. Fine-tuning, the full picture, the movies and kid stuff sections all were almost exactly as I had planned them in a rough prototype I submitted on day one. Beginning in the early 1980s, Gary worked on staff at Topps Cards for three decades, where he developed and wrote properties like Dinosaurs Attack, including the book we'll read today. But first, uh, Gary provided similar services for trading card companies Upper Deck, Rittenhouse Archives, and others. To Mondo-Digital.com, Gary said, Back in the early 70s, I had just graduated from the High School of Art and Design, and my first professional writing assignment was Becoming the Creature from the Black Lagoon for a humorous autobiographical feature article. This appeared in an early issue of the Monster Times, a kind of tabloid answer to Forrest J. Ackerman's Monster Mag, Famous Monsters of Filmland. This piece made me a bit of, of a star up there, and before I knew it, I was ghostwriting Godzilla's monthly col- column as well. I guess Godzilla was, uh, was busy, probably, in the probably. 70s. Yeah, there were a lot yeah. of movies around that time. <laughs> uh, since I was now an associate editor, I was given a free classified ad in the back of the publication. It said something like, Wanted 16mm sci-fi and horror films. Len Brown, who was creative director at Tops, was also a film collector and got in touch with me. Before long, I was writing, editing, and art directing trading card sets for the company, something I do to this day. It's actually a lifelong creative relationship. And Gary is best known for creating and co-authoring with Mark Patrick Carducci the screenplay for Stan Winston's Pumpkinhead, which was released in 1989. Pumpkinhead is a cult horror film that has spawned three sequels and some comic books, one of which Gary wrote. Yeah. Uh, Pumpkinhead, The Rites of Exorcism, which two issues, September through October 1993 from Dark Horse Comics. He did that with Jim McDermott on art. Yeah, he uh, said a little bit uh, about this in that interview with Mondo-Digital.com. He said... Uh, 
Mark Carducci and I first played around with the Revenge Demon as a Lovecraftian scaly monster like the ones in our Super 8 projects. Then we got sidetracked into an interesting area. A lot of people thought if it's called Pumpkinhead, it's got to have a pumpkin for a head. We got into trying to do a Sleepy Hollow type of creature where the witch would tell Ed Harley to go to a graveyard, dig up a corpse, cut the head off, bring it back, and in the meantime, she's carving out this pumpkin with these evil eyes, and when he brings the body back, she brings it all to life. When Stan got involved, you've got arguably the best creature maker around. You're not going to tell him to simply put a pumpkin on a human body. So we got back to the Lovecraftian idea. It's still a bloated head, and we even threw an extra line in the film about how he comes from the old pumpkin patch in the graveyard. And I've seen this creature, and it looks uh, pretty scary. Hmm. Uh, Gary also scripted Showtime's adaptation of the popular Vampirella comic book executive produced by Roger Corman in 1996. Today, Gary works closely with IDW and has published several books with them, topics ranging from film to television to pop culture, as well as some fiction. Did you know that IDW does a whole series of like a hundred craziest sitcoms from the 70s and stuff like that? I had no idea. I, I had no idea, and, and yeah. he, he writes almost all of them, so there we go. How about that? Uh, Gary has won a number of awards over the years, including honors from the Society of Illustrators, the Academy of Science Fiction and Horror Films, and some other organizations. How about that? Uh, now we jump to the other side of the table, and I, I can oh, I always say this name differently. Is it Trimp or Trimpy? Oh, Chris, why is that a question <laughs> I'm supposed to know the answer? You said Trimp earlier, so let's stick with that. We'll stick I, with I've said it both time. ways, though, myself. <laughs> Me too. Okay, so Herb Trimp is on the other side of the table, and this fellow was born May 26, 1939, in Peekskill, New York. He uh, commuted to New York City for three years in order to attend the School of Visual Arts. In 2002, he recalled that SVA instructor and longtime comics artist Tom McGill needed a student to ink his backgrounds and stuff. So that's how I started at Del Comics, doing mostly westerns and also licensed books, like the adaptation for the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, Trimp then enlisted in the United States Air Force. He says, from 1962 to 1966, I was a weatherman, and our unit was on loan, you might say, to the Army. We supplied aviation weather support to the 1st Air Cavalry Division based in the Central Highlands in Vietnam. They used helicopters extensively to move troops around. Now, upon his discharge in October 1966, he learned that fellow SVA classmate John Verporten... Verporten? Verporten. Verporten. Well, this John fellow was working at Marvel Marvel Comics production department. Yeah, in uh, the same year, 2002, Herb recalled... Uh, said they were hiring freelance people, and I should come up to the office and show my work to Saul Brodsky, who was Stan Lee's right-hand man at the time. I was just preparing to put together some material together and go to D.C. and Charlton when I got a call from Saul Brodsky, who was production chief. He said they needed somebody on staff in their production department to run the new photostat machine they had just bought and to do some production work. I would primarily run the stat machine and wouldn't be seated at a desk, but I would be able to pick up some freelance penciling and inking. This kind of opened the door. The staff job didn't pay much by today's standards. I think it started at $135 a week, which wasn't as low as it sounds. Remember, it was 1966, and that was a fairly good entry-level salary. Herb joining the Marvel production staff was announced in the bullpen bulletins of Marvel Comics cover dated June 1967. While operating the photostat camera in the Marvel offices, Tripp did freelance inking for Marvel and made his professional penciling debut with two Kid Cult Western stories in Kid Cult Outlaw number 134 and 135, that's May and July 1967 cover dates respectively. 
Shortly thereafter, Tripp and writer Gary Friedrich created Marvel's World War I aviator hero, the Phantom Eagle, in Marvel Superheroes number 16, September 1968 cover date. His brother, Mike Trimp, inked an Ant-Man story that Trimp penciled in Marvel feature number 6, that's a November 1972 cover date. Now, beginning with pencil finishes over Marie Severin layouts in The Incredible Hulk, Volume 2, Issue 106, that's August 1968, cover date, Herb went on to draw the character for a virtually unbroken run of over seven years, all the way through Issue 142, August 1971, cover date. And then again, from Issue 145 to 193, November 1971 through November 1975, cover dates. Uh, He also did nearly every cover for the Hulk annuals through the 70s and the early 80s. He would draw the cover to Rolling Stone magazine number 91. That was dated September 16, 1971, which was of the Hulk. He was in the saddle at the time, right? (laughs) Yep. Now, under the Marvel method of writer-artist collaboration, Trimp, like most other Marvel artists at the time, was was an uncredited co-plotter for most of his stories, which is a working arrangement that that Trimp said he enjoyed. Uh, Among the characters co-created by Trimp during this run on The Incredible Hulk were Jim Wilson in issue 131, September 1970 cover date, and Doc Samson in issue 141, that is July 1971 cover date. Herb takes credit for creating the Hulkbusters. He would say, The series writers came up with the major concepts. I was not involved much with the creation of the new characters or the new ideas. I didn't want to be. The concept of the Hulkbusters, however, was my idea. I did the schematic diagram of the base. I also designed the unit emblem, which was an H being shattered by a lightning bolt. You remember, Thunderbolt was antagonist General Ross's nickname. The aerial view design of the base was as a peace symbol was used purposefully as a design for the Hulkbuster base, but it really wasn't a joke. It, ju- it was just meant as an ironic ju- juxtaposition of a military base run by an aggressive, blustery general, and the military base design being a symbol of peace. It was like in the 60s and 70s when protesters stuck flowers down the barrels of National Guard rifles. It was a provocative gesture. And, you know, I, I've never really thought of it before, Chris, but just thinking of it now and, and what, what Trimp is saying here, mm. the Hulkbusters do appear like a uh, visuals first sort of concept. Yeah, they? You know for what sure. I mean? Like, definitely yeah. everything about them is all about their look and Because there really isn't a whole lot and... much, there really isn't <laughs> much more to really. them. <laughs> but, they, but they are a definitive look at, like, this, you know, this this uniform or whatever, the, the outfits and stuff. Uh, so, to continue, in 1976, Trimp was one of the inkers of Captain America's Bicentennial Battles, an oversized treasury format one-shot written and penciled by Jack Kirby. Trimp had a year's run on the Defenders from 69 to 81, March 1979 to March 1980 cover dates. And in 2002, Herb recalled that his entry into drawing the Hulk wasn't so smooth. He said, I did like three or four pages, and Stan Lee saw them and made Frank Giacola do the layouts. Trimp's fourth issue uh, was is what he's talking about, uh, number 109, November 1968, cover date. It wasn't my storytelling. There was a good flow there, but it was too much like EC Comics for Stan. I loved EC, the dark atmosphere and clean lines of it, but it wasn't right for Marvel. As a Marvel mainstay, Trimp would draw nearly every starring character, and we've talked about some of them, but let's just uh, check them out in list form. 
Uh, he drew Captain America in Captain America 184 and 291. The Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four Annual 25 and 26, 1982 and 1983. Fantastic Four Unlimited 1 through 12, March 1993 to December 1995 cover dates. He drew Iron Man in issues 39, 82 to 85, and 93 to 94 in the 1970s, plus occasional other appearances. Kazar in Astonishing Tales 7 and 8, that's August and October 1971 cover dates. Nick Fury in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. 13 through 15, July through November 1969 cover. Thor and Thor Annual 15 and 16, those were 1990 and 1991's annuals. I uh, got Ant-Man in Marvel Feature, number one, uh, sorry, number four through six. Uh, Kill Raven in Amazing Adventures number 20 through 24 and then 33. Uh, he drew Rawhide Kid, Spider-Man, which I gotta say, not the best Spider-Man, but that's okay. And many more as the regular artist of Marvel Team-Up number 106 to 118 that had June 1981 to June 1982 cover dates. That'll cover your spread on Marvel characters, that right there. Sure. And uh, Marvel Team-Up annual 3 and 4, uh, 1980 and 1981. Uh, as the artist of Supervillain Team Up, Trim co-created The Shroud with the artist with writer Steve Englehart. And he drew Marvel Treasury Edition number 25 in 1980, Spider-Man vs. the Hulk at the Winter Olympics, which featured a story set at the 1980 Winter Olympics written by writers Mark Gruenwald, Stephen Grant, and Bill Mantlo. In the late 70s and 80s, uh, Herb Trimp became one of Marvel's licensed property guys, and his work included all but issues 4 and 5 of the 24-issue Godzilla series, that was August 1977 through July 1979 covers, all but one of the 20-issue Shogun Warriors series, six issues of the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, and he also wrote the final two, G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, number one, that was July 1982 cover date, and also eight other issues, three of which that he wrote or co-wrote. Nearly the entire run of the 28-issue spinoff, G.I. Joe Special Missions, 1986-1989. Three of the four-issue miniseries, G.I. Joe, The Order of Battle, 1986-1987. And three issues of the Transformers and Say. He also drew this first issue of Dinosaur's Attack <laughs> right around that same time. And he, yeah. he would eventually complete the series for IDW in 2014. I got to say, it really seems like he retired and then came back for this. Uh, because mm -hmm. sadly he did pass away April 13, 2015 in New York. So I believe this could be his last work. I his last you. work. But, but yeah. I'm, I'm not positive about that. Uh, and also we got to talk about Earl Norum, who handles all the painted work in this comic, of which there are several pages that are just flat out painted. And they, they, yep. look, they look more like the trading cards, I guess, is the idea. Anyway, uh, he was born April 17, 1923, in Brooklyn, New York. He saw military action in World War II with the 85th Regiment of the 10th Mountain Division. Earl trained in Colorado and Texas and fought the Germans in the northern Appian Mountains of Italy. By age 20, Earl was a squad leader and a staff sergeant who, in the Italian campaign, fought alongside famed skier Torger Tokel whom he had seen ski jumping at Bear Mountain, New York, when he was a boy. <laughs> you just got to think about how weird that must have been. Be like, hey, <laughs> I didn't you. I see you ski jumping when I was, oh, well, let's go shoot a German. Uh, after Tolkien was killed in action, Norm was one of the men assigned to retrieve his body from the mountain. So never meet your heroes, kids. That's what no. that is. Uh, Norm himself was later wounded going into the Po Valley, ending his military stint. And after the war, Earl Norm became an illustrator. 
Uh, now, throughout the 50s and 60s, he worked extensively for men's adventure magazines. He produced covers and interior art spreads for bawdy stories. Uh, in addition, he produced illustrations for such magazines such as uh, Reader's Digest, Field and Stream, Ski, Real West, and Discover. Earl worked on such Marvel Comics projects as The Savage Sword of Conan, Marvel Preview, Tales of the Zombie, Monsters Unleashed, Planet of the Apes, Rampaging Hulk, Silver Surfer, and storybooks featuring Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. Now, he painted the cover for the Silver Surfer original graphic novel, which was published by Fireside in 1978. He painted, Mar- uh, he painted four Marvel Big Looker storybooks. Those were published between the years of 1984 and 86, some of which were later adapted into read-along storybooks. We got The Battle for Cybertron, The Great Car Rally, Car Show Blow-Up, and the story of Wheelie, the wild boy of Quintessen. <laughs> all right. Cool. Sure. <laughs> Were those all uh, like uh, Transformers? Uh, I know perhaps? I know. Quintessen is a trans and Cybertron. Those are words familiar to me from Transformers. <laughs> that's the only thing I, uh, so, that's the only connection I've got. That's all I can say about that, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> now, he would also provide box art for Mego toys during the time, as well as uh, movie posters. In the 1980s, Earl Norum provided lush artwork for the Masses of the Universe magazine. Not the DC or Marvel comic books, though. Uh, Considered by fans to be among the best He-Man work ever done. Now, suffering from arthritis, he had retired in 2005, only painting for his own amusement and for his grandchildren. He would say in a 2005 interview, All the contacts that I had in the commercial art field are either retired or dead, and the younger art buyers don't want anything to do with an 81-year-old artist. But you clearly can't keep a great artist down, for in 2013 he had contributed paintings to the company's Mars Attacks Invasion card set. At the time of his death, he was working on a trading card assignment for Topps Mars Attacks franchise, presumably the Mars Attacks occupation set that was produced in 2015. And sometime in between those two projects, he added some expert paintwork to this series that we're going to talk Mm -hmm. about right here. Uh, He passed away June 19th, uh, 2015 in Danbury, Connecticut after a surgery. So, uh, what is Dinosaur's Attack? What are we talking about here? Um, Before going any further... We must credit Bob Hefner and his website, bobhefner.com, where he has cataloged every card and sticker front and back, as all provided some backstory for these and other non-sports trading cards. I mean, you've really really just got to head over to his site and check it out before you even finish this, at least to see these cards, because we're going to reference some of them. But also, it's invaluable, this site. It's, it's, it's very quaint, and uh, you need mm-hmm. to look at it, bobhefner.com. So, uh, Dinosaur's Attack was a non-sports trading card set released by Topps in 1988. It had 55 base cards depicting the story of Dinosaur's Attack, which was primarily paintings of dinosaurs uh, attacking. And, uh, okay, there makes were, sense. They were a, it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a lie. That was the, they weren't, <laughs> you weren't getting ripped off by what the uh, package claimed. Uh, there were also 11 sticker cards of dubiously rendered dinosaurs with dinosaur statistics on the back. Uh, these were considered a follow-up to the popular 1960s sci-fi trading card set, Mars Attacks, about which we will learn more uh, later, much more. Uh, but for our immediate purposes, as Mars Attacks was an homage to 1950s sci-fi movies, Dinosaur's Attack was an homage to monster rampaging movies like The Beast of 20,000 Fathoms or Godzilla, stuff like that. Uh, Both sets were exceedingly 
bloody and gory and violent, and that was their thing. <laughs> now, Top's veteran product developers, Ott Spiegelman and Len Brown, who had designed and written Maws Attacks, and Gary Garani uh, developed the idea for this series. Garani sketched out the uh, 55 COD storyboard and wrote the copy for the COD backs. Herb Trimp adapted these into pencils with some assistance from John Nemec and George Evans. Then, Earl Norum and XNO would deliver the final paintings. Paul Mavreeds and uh, Harry H. Robbins did the artwork for the 11 stickers. Now, the artwork is intended to be shocking and graphically bloody, with one card showing school children being eaten by an Allosaurus, mm-hmm. which is a <laughs> which is a sort of a mini T-Rex. Uh, we got a Stegosaurus, the, uh, that's the plate-backed dinosaur. He uh, devours a police officer while its spike tail gouges out the eye of another. And a, and a pterodon, which is, you know, the flying dinosaur. We got them tearing apart the President of the United States. Yeah. Other memorable cards depicted Triceratops goring the bride and groom at their wedding, uh, pseudo-pterodactyls pecking at Taurus on Mount Rushmore, and an allosaurus killing a lion that has just killed a man at the zoo. They're forming kind of a pile. The man's on the bottom, <laughs> the lion on top, uh, while a flying dinosaur carries off a gorilla in the background. It's nice. It's like a, it's like a smorgasbord. Uh, the cards are grossly inaccurate, as well as being gross. They're grossly inaccurate in their depictions. For instance, in one card, trilobites are portrayed as flesh-eating worms swarming a man's face. In reality, trilobites consumed mud for nutrients and didn't actually mostly grow as big as they're being depicted. A uh, Demetrodon, the sailback dinosaur, believed to be 15 feet long at maximum, is depicted as dwarfing St. Basil's Cathedral in Russia, which is 156 feet high. Uh, several herbivores are depicted as flesh eaters, carnivores, and other various dinosaurs are not actual dinosaurs at all, but references to movie monsters Gorgo, Reptilicus, and Retosaurus, the last one being from the Beast of 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, not to mention that this series throws together dinosaurs from completely different epochs, species that existed tens and hundreds of millions of years apart from each other. Like, not even, you know, this would, <laughs> this would be like, uh, you know, a story with you walking around with your friend, the giant dragonfly. Uh, Trachodon, or the uh, duckabell dinosaur, is the exception. It is correctly portrayed as a plant eater and is never seen directly causing any deaths in its card titled Day of the Duckbill, one of my favorites. Uh, it does, however, startle one man into shooting his friend in the chest with a shotgun. So, Like you do. That's, there's this. It's a little gore for you. Don't worry. You, you don't get ripped off with that one. No one's trying to... Uh, additionally, that card, the Duckbill one, is the only one of the 11 stickers shown not killing a human. Instead, he's trying to eat a streetlight. How about that? Yeah. Now, uh, now, why did this series begin at Eclipse Comics and then wind up at IDW to complete? Uh, to conclude here, we got Eclipse Comics intended to release a three-part miniseries based on the cards, however, ended up only releasing the first issue back in 1991. This would be a square-bound 48-page deluxe deal. Uh, this comic book also included four Dinosaurs Attack bonus cards that had never been seen before and have not been reprinted since. Well, Eclipse Comics folded in 1995 due to a bunch of factors, uh, not the least of which was the decline of the market. And now we go over this, uh, all of this, in uh, Weed Comics History, episodes 30, 31. Uh, that's the direct market. Uh, we also talk about it a bit in the uh, Marvel Man, Miracle Man series. They're that's all right. available in the that's archives right. for right. you. Now, in uh, July 2013, as part of the series' 25th anniversary, and with a partnership with uh, Gary Garani, IDW reprinted the one Eclipse issue as two individual issues, and then finished the story as a five-part series. And we're going to read just that first issue, the IDW reprint, 
right now. So this is actually hey. Dinosaurs Attack number one, 2013, not 1991, which is what the original comic came out. Hmm. So the cover of the IDW issue is the same as the original Eclipse version, aside from the obvious logos and dress have changed a little bit. Uh, but the picture is a green and blue plesiosaur, a plesiosaur, which is the Loch Ness monster to us, basically, has wrapped itself around the Statue of Liberty. People are spilling out of the statue's torch, though that's been closed to the public since 1984. Helicopters and paratroopers are swarming the dinosaur with gunfire, which looks pretty awesome. And uh, right from the outset, the proportions are way off. Plesiosaurs are thought <laughs> to have grown to 31 feet, and the Statue of Liberty is 151 feet and one inch tall. That's right. And one <laughs> inch. Uh, yet here, the monster, as you can see, is way, way bigger than the statue. Certainly. Now inside, our story begins with a broadcast from Toledo, Ohio. It's the Threevening News with Bob Gowan, presented in Holovision, where available. So, uh, uh, this is the uh, future, then. Right. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, okay. some near future. Uh, Bob Gowan says, Good evening. Only a week remains before the historic demonstration of time scan and then the birth of a new scientific age. Even now, select UN delegates are making final preparations for their flight into space. Destination... The orbiting space station Prometheus. Mounted on the underside of this enormous installation, the time scan projector disperses a particle beam that, within a matter of hours, completely envelops the surface of a planet or other celestial target. Didn't, didn't the Justice League have something like this on the Watchtower? I've never called it to work very well for them, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take a lesson. Just three months ago, the time scan procedure was successfully tested on the surface of the moon. Since then, lunar specialists have drawn remarkable new information concerning the origin and development of our natural satellite, equivalent data about the Earth that will have an even greater effect on our lives, shedding light on some of the profound mysteries of the past. A full page shows us what Bob Gowan is talking about. We got a gigantic space station right out of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, and the moon being zapped and getting all sparkly. And on the next page, boy, we got us a lot of copy. Yeah, there's a lot of chit-chat right here. So, time scan, of course, was conceived and perfected by Professor Elias Thorne, a modern-day Einstein. Thorne has captured the public's imagination with a series of scientific miracles, ranging from the Positronic Telescope to Sonic Windshield Wipers. He is humanity's most celebrated son, winner of more awards, more peace prizes than anyone else in history. So, two then, yeah. because uh, no one has ever been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize more than once. Uh, now, some have won two Nobel Prizes. For instance, we have Marie Curie and Linus Pauling. They won Nobel Prizes for chemistry and peace. But no one has been awarded two Nobel Peace Prizes. Right. So if you got two, you win. You win. You win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got to look at Professor Elias Thorne here, whose face is on the cover of Scientific American Time and Newsweek magazines. Uh, he looks kind of like Stephen King, but with a better haircut, I think. For sure. <laughs> definitely on the uh, colloquially dashing side of things. Yeah, he's he's supposed to definitely appear sexy here, I would think, you know, the, yes. or, or covetable or whatever. <laughs> Only one leading scientist dares oppose his views, Professor Helen Chambers. Thorne's most ardent challenger in the field of temporal physics is also shuttling to Prometheus next week. 
Yeah, in the uh, field of temporal physics, it's like these two, a 16-year-old Japanese genius and then a 70-year-old burnout shouting at garbage cans on the boulevard, right? You don't hear about people with temporal (laughs) physics degrees, you know? I don't don't really recall that being a class, maybe, yeah. Uh, So maybe that's in the future. Maybe. She has actively protested the upcoming demonstration in a number of rallies across the world. The news program switches over to an interview with Professor Helen Chambers, who has a severe but very 1990s-appropriate blonde hairdo. Yeah, and behind her is a pretty well-populated protest against time scan. Uh, I guess people are more knowledgeable about temporal physics in the future. Yeah, that'll show us. Uh, we got one reporter going, Do you consider the time scan bath potentially dangerous? And Helen responds, an infinite number of atomic particles saturating every square inch of this planet? Sure, I'd say I'm a little worried. This really doesn't feel like a time for sarcasm, yeah, does is it? Is there a danger? Is a danger yeah, thing? things uh, bad are happening, yeah. <laughs> Another reporter says, What about the moon? There are no side effects. Just that, uh, you know, one Pink Floyd album, and, and that's pretty awesome. Oh, right? yeah, especially when you play it with, uh, <laughs> what is that movie? Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Woo, yeah. boy. <laughs> How can you determine the side effects on a chunk of dead rock? The Earth's a living world. I'd like to keep it that way. Yes, but is any life not being bathed in atomic particles worth living? It's, right? it's something to think about. That is true. Yeah. Uh, another reporter says, Do you have anything personal against Professor Thorne? I don't like his brand of aftershave. Next question. This segment was brought to you by Be Gone Aftershave for when you don't want her to linger. <laughs> no. I told you no. we're taking on ads. So that's what we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, as you've already guessed, Elias Thorne and Helen Chambers are former lovers. Uh, they were once married, uh, as we see in a snippet of an article over which Bob Gowan continues to speak. The headline of that reads, uh, Scientific wizard Elias Thorne weds former student. Temporal physicist takes vows with Helen Chambers, his greatest rival. Looks like the ceremony was held in Kinnebunkport, uh, Maine. Uh, maybe, maybe this guy is Stephen King. It could be right there. You know, I don't know. Helen Chambers, it should be noted, was previously married to Eli- Elias Thorne. They were divorced last spring. In an ironic twist of fate, their 10-year-old daughter won't be traveling into space for the historic test. She is confined to her bed with an ancient ailment. Even her genius parents can't do anything about the flu. And all the temporal physics in the world can't stop a child from... Puking. Yeah, and when you reverse time, you just happens more times, so you can't really stop it from and, happening. And going back in, it isn't as pleasant. <laughs> it's not good the second time or, or third time, no. But we'll be there. Oh, sure, Bob. Rub it in. This little girl's crying right now. She's, She's like, oh. She's the toilet. Come on, man. As most Ohio TV viewers already know, I've been selected to accompany my prestigious colleagues in the national news media as part of NASA's Fair Shake campaign. Tomorrow, I'm off to Cape Canaveral, and in less than a week, the space shuttle fleet will be heading toward Prometheus. So unless Professor Chambers can pull off a miracle of her own and half the time scan demonstration and halt the time scan demonstration, all systems are go. En route to Prometheus, six days later, we see a fleet of space shuttles. Hey, just like Bob Gowan promised. He's a man of his word. <laughs> Inside one of the space shuttles, it looks like more like a commercial flight. 
but way roomier than that. It's like five, uh, five seats in the whole thing. Like, I wouldn't mind taking right? a plane like that. <laughs> now, Bob Gowan and Professor Helen Chambers are on the same shuttle, naturally. Yeah, he thinks to himself, this is so embarrassing. And then he says, er, uh, excuse me, miss. Do you have anything for him? Space shuttle attendant is by Bob Gowan's side in an instant. That's right. A space shuttle attendant. How about that? <laughs> Relax, Mr. Gowan. You're not the only one that's space sick. This'll fix you up in a jiffy. Thanks. Meanwhile, Professor Chambers is going over some of her notes. Yeah, she thinks to herself, Miskatonic, NYU, Berkeley, these petitions might change the delegates' minds, but if they don't... Now, New York University and Berkeley University University we know of, but Miskatonic University is a fictional university located in Arkham. That's a fictional town in Essex County, Massachusetts, which first appeared in H.P. Lovecraft's 1922 short story called Herbert West, Reanimator. Then it would become a recurring location in much of Lovecraft's work. It's really it's really a weird outlier here. Like It is, right? Oh, uh... Okay, that's strange, but cool. All right, whatever. Weird little reference. And then she thinks to herself, there's always plan B. Hey, what's this? Helen pulls out a picture drawn by her daughter, who is also Elias Thorne's daughter. It shows Helen and Elias duking it out with boxing gloves on. They're labeled mom and dad. A scrawled note reads, may the best scientist win. Love, Alice. Helen thinks, my funny, wonderful darling. I only pray you're not crying on the inside. May the best scientist win, huh? Well, maybe this time he won't. Uh, if you're already conceding that he's the better scientist, then he, he kind of already won this thing, right? I, you know, why are you going up there? Just let the let the better one do their thing, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. pick up the pieces. So, uh, anyway, the space shuttle's docking Prometheus, and everything is going smoothly. Well, it makes you say that. What makes me say what? Everything is going smoothly, like 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 it shouldn't be. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying everything is going as planned uh, for now. Well, what makes you say that? Now, a large crowd of people have assembled in central operations, which is a room with computer stuff on the walls and a circular stage in the middle. Some guy tries to get people hyped up. Yes, Dr. Rubin, he goes, Patience! Patience! Professor Thorne will be here momentarily. He's, what? I can't hear you. You'll have to shout louder. He turns it into like a hype man. <laughs> louder, you know, throw your hands. Anyway, uh, in the crowd, Bob Gowan mingles with other reporters. He says, it's been almost an hour. I think the crowd's getting a little restless. The lady goes, reminds me of rock concerts I used to cover. You covered rock concerts? And I think her uh, pristine Jerry curl should have tipped him off to that. <laughs> I wasn't always with CNN. Hey, listen. Isn't that music? A marching band appears and does their thing in front of the stage, and presumably this calms the crowd down, I guess. I I don't believe it. Believe it. That's an old-fashioned marching band. Now, Helen is in the crowd. We got a bearded guy named Ambrose is lurking behind her. Now, it's tough to say whether they're together or just know each other. Actually, they, they might have just only met. Yeah, no, I really have no <laughs> idea what, this, what their relationship is. Uh, but Helen does say... I have to admit, Elias always did know how to make an entrance. Yes, he does. And from this point on, he has them. We'll see, Ambrose. I'm afraid we can see already. Just look around. Bob Gowan is pretty dumbstruck. He's thinking, this guy is too much. Better start my report. 
Now, Professor Elias Thorne appears on the circular stage to much fanfare and applause. He's got both, he's got his hands in his pockets almost sheepishly. This is Bob Gowan reporting live for Channel 3 News. Applause and wild cheering engulfs central operations, and with a fanfare of trombones, Professor Elias Thorne welcomes us with the easy charm of a wonderstruck, imaginative child. Yeah, I think he even made Boom Boom in his diaper. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <well>. <laughs> Professor <laughs> Thorne begins his presentation immediately, displaying three seeds of historic conflict. Uh, these seeds are actually taken from three trading card sets. It's Horrors of War, Civil War News, and Battle, about which we will learn much more later on in the second half of the show. That's really cool. I like that. I yeah. like that touch there. It was a good touch, though. Yeah. And Elias goes, the past, uh, we've, we've always been intrigued by it. Now we can watch it. That's what time scanning's all about. We uh, unfreeze the history recorded on Earth's temporal planes, then play back moments and sequences on the giant screen. Sort of like Super Cinerama, but real. So it's like IMAX in 3D? Is that what you're saying? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Those tickets are expensive. Now, these are just simulations, of course. Uh, nothing like the real thing when you see it, but just the, consider the possibilities. World-famous events can now be analyzed with accuracy and detail never before possible. For scientists and histories, it's a lifelong dream come true. But, like, if they're, if they're just simulations, nothing like the real thing, then, then just what are they studying? I mean, how is that different from going to Walt Disney or something? And... Or, we're looking at a textbook or reading an account. I mean, this is like yeah. if the people who watch the movie adaptations to do high school book reports ran the world, basically. They, they would want to do this. <laughs> and speaking of lifelong dreams, the period of history I'm most anxious to explore is the prehistoric past. Dinosaurs were the most successful species ever to dominate the Earth. And it was their world far longer than it's been ours. Now we got to pay dinosaurs reparations, too? I mean, they were gone when we showed up. Come on now. <laughs> what caused their extinction? Perhaps now, with the aid of time scan, one of the greatest mysteries of natural history will be solved. And here we see two panels of dinosaurs in their natural habitats, uh, lushly painted by Earl Norum, we have to assume. And they look, yeah. look pretty cool, i got to say. They do. Now, Helen Chambers grabs the microphone from somewhere, <laughs> and uh, she says... Professor Thorne, I respectfully disagree. In the spirit of decency and fair play, please allow me an opportunity to state my case, a case clearly presented in this video that's been formatted to run on your system. Wow, formatted to Betamax? <laughs> They're very technical of you. <laughs> now, uh, Helen produces some kind of disc. It looks like a DVD and a VHS tape had a kid. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't make up what this was supposed to be. <laughs> a little everything. Uh... I can't promise you dazzling special effects, but I think you'll find it has a powerful message. Ah, oh, that's not one of them Schoolhouse Rock cartoons, is it? I hope not. I hate that little music. Oh, you know? oh don't turn on the time scan. Uh, <laughs> a random old guy is just very angry with this upstart woman. He says, Oh, just wait a moment. This is highly irregular. Never mind, Bellamy. Play the disc. Now, <laughs> the movie is expressed as a text scroll that tapers off into illegibility. There apparently is no <laughs> visual component at all. Uh, it points out that seeing any point in history could be damaging to national security, uh, which is true, but uh, sort of weird that a movie would just be a bunch of text. Like, just put, <laughs> put down a report for people to read. I don't really understand what's going on. Weird. <laughs> uh, Elias catches Helen in an elevator after the gripping movie. <laughs> 
you've won. My my delicate pal, my delicate pals are delaying the test until they've reevaluated the feasibility of a mission. No one uh, properly evaluated that until now. I mean, come on. They, they just took his word for it. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Thank God. You scared them off with your idiotic disc of yours. I was desperate. You were just thinking about yourself, about beating me. You're wrong, Elias. I was thinking about Alice on Earth. If something should go wrong up there... Alice? Bob Gowan phones into his news office and tells him the test has been delayed. Uh, you would think they would know this already, but I right? guess not. They're not too upset since Bob's work has already put their little podunk Ohio station on the map. Uh, but Bob is crestfallen. Using his journalistic know-how, Bob crawls into the underbelly of Prometheus to interview a technician named Dr. Rubin. Excuse me, Dr. Rubin. As one of the key technicians and screen operators on TimeScan, what do you think about this unexpected delay? I mean, I assume he's got to start getting time and a half now, right? At the very At least. At the very yeah. least, yeah. <laughs> you want the God's honest truth? It annoys the hell out of me, and I don't give a damn if you print that. Well, uh, this is a television news show, sir. We don't print anything, but uh, do go on, do go on. Maybe they'll make a video like uh, like, <laughs> like Ellen did, sure. <laughs> we spent the last three weeks coordinating the scanner to the Mesozoic era. If the demonstration is put off, it means millions of micro settings have to be recalibrated. In layman's terms, it means starting from scratch, Jack. Meanwhile, in some living room, doctors Thorne and Chambers are talking to their little daughter Alice on a video screen. Yeah, Alice goes, sorry, Dad. Here, Mom, won the first round. Why, you little brat! <laughs> well, it's only a temporary delay. Uh, your mom's a tough opponent. You better believe it. Yes, who could have foreseen that she would bring the most obvious argument in at the very last <laughs> no, minute? No one really thought of that, that this might be oh, bad boy. for national This might be bad. <laughs> now, oh. don't forget to take your aspirins, Alice, and tell Mrs. Newless we'll call in the morning. Love and kisses, darling. Over and out. The screen shuts off, and uh, Ellie, Elias turns to Professor Chambers. I'm sorry, Helen. I was really looking forward to seeing you. Uh-huh. No, I, I, I mean it. You and Ambrose are the only ones I trust. Hmm, so maybe Ambrose is his boyfriend then? I don't know. Maybe. We'll find, maybe. find out eventually. Ambrose was telling me about your dreams. How moody you've been lately? What's going on? It's more than dreaming. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm finally cracking up. I'm really not sure. One thing's for sure, he should definitely be heading up a project that will zap the planet with untested radiation, right? That's, you know, Absolutely. no matter how poorly More you're than sleeping, qualified. you're yeah. fine. Uh, Elias tells the story, and we can see him alone in a laboratory performing experiments on himself. There are wires attached to his head with, like, cups, you know, those hmm. sticky things, and taking readings while he uses some telekinesis. For the past three weeks, weird, unexplainable things have been happening on Prometheus. Remember those routine ESP experiments I used to conduct every month? Well, I, I conducted one just recently in, in my private lab. Is this some kind of code for manscaping right here? I hope he didn't paint that. <laughs> As you recall, I've always had a high ESPA rating, and with my brainwaves augmented by external amplifier, I can muster a small measure of telekinetic power. Yeah, Helen learned about this during the uh, wedding dress malfunction incident about which we will speak no more. It's all in Hot Dog the movie. You can watch it. Go ahead. <laughs> Just enough power to control small objects, such as one of my peace prizes, which I levitated several feet into the air. 
Why, if you had been there, Helen, he'd have been holding it over your head. Perhaps dangling it. Just out of your grasp. Just whip, oh, whip, whip, whip. Just yank it that, away. That, that passive-aggressive telekinesis <laughs> know, really? is the worst. <laughs> Pleased, I, I psychically lowered the, the award to its original position on the table, pulled the electrodes off my head, and scribbled some notes. Uh, dear Diary, I am so awesome. Uh, when will everyone just admit how amazingly <laughs> awesome I am forever? XOXO alive. <laughs> <laughs> Then I looked up again and gasped. The award was once again suspended in midair. Only this time I wasn't go- I wasn't doing the levitating. Seconds later, the trophy smashes against the ceiling. Don't worry. I, I hear he's got several peace prizes. Yeah, really. Right? Come on. He's probably used several. it with the proper door open. Uh, <laughs> then the room is filled with an evil laughter with no obvious source. The laughter was malevolent, unearthly. My my blood turned to ice. Is, what is this strange and sinister presence? Lately, I've been sensing it again and again, staring out into the darkness, haunting me. And we see Elias Thorne crashed out on his bed lengthwise, and two giant serpent-like glowing eyes peer at him from the darkness. Uh, now I'm, I'm more convinced than ever that uh, Elias is the man. He's the guy. To, this to is bombard fine. the planet. That's with perfectly radio. fine. That's normal, yeah. <laughs> now, at this moment, Ambrose and Bob Gowan are sharing a glass of wine. So, hey, maybe it's this is where we'll find out who this guy is. I sure hope so. Uh, Gowan says, I still can't figure out why you're talking to me. I'm just a nobody from Ohio. This is hardly an interview, but I feel the need to unburden myself. You have an honest face, Gowan. I trust my instincts. Oh, just kiss him already. God. Please. Thanks, Doc. As Ambrose tells his story, we see flashback scenes of what is being described. Seems uh, he and Professor Thorne have known each other for a long time. Elias Thorne was a child prodigy, and to ensure his successful development, he was educated privately. Wow. Okay. Uh, wow. Well, I wasn't prepared for that indictment against public schooling, but all right. I know. There it is. This is a meta message. <laughs> really? <laughs> his only real emotional outlet was his older brother, Jory, whom he loved very dearly. Sadly, Jory died of a rare blood disease when Elias was 12. And that's when I entered the picture, to pick up the precious pieces. Good thing you were there to exploit a young boy's tragedy. Or, it's or, true. It might have gone to waste. That's too bad. <laughs> I could sense immediately then budding, the budding of a split personality. His love-hate relationship with people was daunting, but certainly not incurable. I didn't realize at the time that this one lonely genius, little genius of a boy would eventually become my life's work. So I stopped working on a cure for cancer and concentrated on encouraging this narcissistic brat. Clearly the righteous. (laughs) Significantly, the loss of Jory shattered Elias' belief in God. And ever since becoming an adult, he's been stepping in God's shoes, so to speak, by performing miracle after miracle for the benefit of mankind. Though, truth be told, God had kind of fallen down in that department if you catch my drift. You know what I mean? Heard heard a peep from the fella for a while. (laughs) He became a workaholic, then a loner. Helen Chambers was a positive influence, but his attitude toward her scientific aspirations was paranoid, condescending. Their marriage eventually crumbled. As caretaker for the most important mind of the century, I wondered about Thorne's dark, spiteful side. If only there were someone who could speak with him about this in a frank manner. But alas, Ambrose is only to observe. (laughs) He's, He's a remarkable man, Bob. A good man. But emotionally, he's unsettled. 
and I cannot help but be concerned. Yeah, uh, make sure you note how concerned Ambrose was when the dinosaurs start eating people, okay? That's what gonna dinosaurs? Be... That, well, we'll get to that later, sorry. <laughs> uh, that night, Professor Thorne is having a fitful, sweaty sleep in bed with Professor Chambers, who's draped over him lovingly. <laughs> Looks like no one can resist sexy Stephen King, no, right? I've done nothing. Divorce, <laughs> nothing, you know? Now, down in the central chambers, a bunch of technicians are leaning on the equipment while drinking coffee. In the foreground, we see a switch for time scan, the heavy-duty handle with a couple of fail-safes. Yeah, one of the technicians says, Do you want another cup of coffee? No, thanks. Are there any Diet Cokes left? Uh, I don't think so. And uh, let me tell you, if my wife were aboard the Prometheus, that would be a full-scale emergency. You would, they would have to fly Diet, <laughs> alert. Diet Coke. It would be huge. Yeah, it would be a bad time. <laughs> Without the technicians noticing, the fail-safes mysteriously fail oh. one by one. We got the cover flying off of the connecting circuit, a, a wire holding the handle in, the, in place breaks, and the handle locks into place, and then a countdown from 60 begins. Are you still pining away over Donna? Black girl? No, I've forgotten her already. Just the other night. Hey, hey, listen, you hear something? Behind these guys, the machinery is fluttering to life. Uh, literally, the sound effects are blip, blip, flutter, flutter. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what the hell? That's the same thing up here. Something's triggered the system. Can you stop it? Trying to right now. Whoops, no dice. And I may have set the whole thing to dinosaurs. Just whoopsies. Uh, oh. <laughs> now the other technician gets on the phone. That does it. I'm giving the boss a wake-up call. Elias is dressed and in central chamber immediately along with Dr. Rubin. And I gotta say, uh, he's wearing this really smart-looking orange suit and red tie. Dr. Rubin <laughs> is. It's, it's like he came from the, like a zoot suit from the club. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Thorne's in like a lab, cl- lab coat and vest looks, you know, like a schmo. <laughs> like he should. <laughs> Basically. Looks, yeah. Elias goes, morning, gentlemen. Uh, Professor Thorne, uh, we, have an cri- we have an inexplicable crisis on our hands. I didn't think you woke me for sausage and pancakes. Uh, summation, Dr. Rubin. Something triggered the system surgeon. We're still not sure how far down the line it goes. Interesting. I think we better find out, don't you? Professor Thorne is always more congenial after he gets lucky. Aren't we all? <laughs> pull, pull the plug on levels three and four. We tried. The computers aren't responding. Uh, you know, if they're not responding with a loss of power, that's when you get a priest. Okay, gotcha. that, that's a big gotcha. problem. Yeah. <laughs> then forget the higher functions and switch to manual. Uh, I need I need to see a readout immediately. Elias and everyone else crowd around a big glowing light in the center of a console, and somehow they're getting some kind of information out of it. Would you look at that? Whatever started this surge looks awfully determined. Determined to get me in a lot of hot water. Look, look, the accelerated chain reaction has activated the lens locking sequence and particle distiller. You mean time scan? What are you saying, Professor Thorne? I'm saying that as long as this has happened and as long as we're powerless to stop it, we might as well go ahead with our original plans for the demonstration. That's it, gentlemen. Get on the horn and wake everybody up. Tell them the biggest show of all time is about to begin, whether they're ready for it or not. And then, it happens. Prometheus launches a beam from its center gun thingy, whatever. And a ray of energy hits Earth and bathes it it in a pink, veiny glow. Uh, The central chamber erupts into a cacophony of voices in many languages. I guess everyone has showed up now. And Professor Thorne is trying to calm the crowd. Some Some national newscaster who isn't Bob Gowan reports on this scene. 
What has already been dubbed the Thorngate Affair continues to escalate according to the latest GBS poll conducted by <coughs> this correspondent. A staggering 93% of delegates present believe Elias Thorne activated the time scan device in outright defiance of the temporary ban. Questions remain. What does this mean for Thorne's reputation? Will he lose popular support at home? Will the intellectuals desert him? Will the chemistry sets marketed with his name and likeness suffer a sudden precipitous drop in sales? Fortunately for our viewers and listeners the world over, GBS News is right here and on the job. Wow, we were putting gate on the end of words back then, too. Oh, yeah, going a wow. long, long time. <laughs> now, Bob Gowan is off to the side here. He's kind of smirking for some reason. Uh, he's not being granted access to the central chamber, either. It's pandemonium here. Security guards have their hands full holding back reporters and angry delegates. Someone's being allowed through. I believe that's Professor Helen Chambers on her way to the main platform. And it is. Uh, she rushes right over to Elias. Can you use some help from the world's second greatest temporal physicist? And uh, don't flatter yourself, honey. That 70-year-old guy ranting at garbage cans has some pretty good ideas, I'm telling you. He does. He yeah. really does. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a fun guy to talk to. <laughs> Not necessary, my dear. We're just going to go with the flow right now. If you really want to help out, try, try keeping those delegates and reporters off our backs. What a butthead. Right? I'm sure Helen feels the same way. She does, yeah. <laughs> Later on, time has passed. A second hour has passed. Moving from technician to technician, Professor Thorne maintains a constant vigil. No one can... Wait a second. Just a second. There seems to be... Someone in the crowd stands up and points at the large screen. Look there! A great swamp! I see nothing! Something coming in now! The picture gets clearer, and it does look like a lush, dense swamp. And got to tell you, I'm sweating just looking at it. It looks, it looks pretty humid in there, I agree. <laughs> That's some kind of landscape. I can see trees, foliage. It's moving. It's alive. Look. Did you see that? It flew right past a bird or something. That's not a bird. It's, oh, my God. That's, that's an insect. And so it is, a picture of the prehistoric world. A giant dragonfly is buzzing around in the foreground. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Elias Thorne. Welcome to the Devonian era. Wasn't he trying to hit the Mesozoic era? Took the wrong turn it out. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> According to my calculations, it is morning, approximately 10 minutes to noon, Eastern Standard Time, 300 million years ago. Elias stands behind Dr. Ruben, who sits at a small console. Hold us steady, Dr. Ruben. Don't sweat it, Professor. I'm not letting this baby sleep away. Bob Gowan is just hanging out with Ambrose and Helen, watching this all unfold, and he just says to no one in particular, It's fantastic. We're observing living history. Whatever happens from this point on, whatever our leaders decide, whatever we make of this fabulous new invention, one thing is certain. The world will never be the same. Worth noting that uh, Bob Gowan is looking uh, really haggard here. He looks like crap. I don't know why. What happened? <laughs> he looks rough. <laughs> uh, and then, filling the screen that's showing everyone this swamp from millions of years ago, appear two yellow serpentesque eyes. And eventually, ridges of a very rept reptilian brow and nose. Uh-oh. Oh, this is going to be bad, but it also is. 
the end of the issue, folks. So we're going to put a pin in that right now, <laughs> and uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to tell you all about the rest of the story, which actually does include some dinosaurs, I promise. Do they attack? We'll find out when we get back, Chris. <laughs> I want to surprise everything. At Play School, we know kids love our dinosaurs because they've made them the most popular ones in history. We've got Play School dinosaurs are big and strong and tough. Spines and teeth and tails, jaws and horns and sails. We can play with them real rough. And now we've made eight more just as big and realistic with parts that move and cavesters too. Play School's definitely dinosaurs. Play School dinosaurs are big and strong and tough. We can play with them All right, we are back. Yeah. And, uh, we did the first issue, so let's do the rest of the story. And uh, so uh, uh, any any dinosaurs actually going to get to attacking in this thing? Yeah, uh, it is sort of a bait and switch with the first issue, though. Uh, you know, from here on, the dinosaurs attacking does get hot and heavy. And I think it's worth nice. saying that when Eclipse did this, this, this first issue we read was half of what they printed. Half of the first. Yeah, so yeah. there was, the when Eclipse did it, there was more a payoff, but not this time around. So uh, the rest of the story is right after the events we just described, where those eyes appear in the uh, giant screen. Professor Elias Thorne suffers a heart attack, and this more or less takes him out of play when the mayhem starts. It really all begins at the Verrazano Bridge. A brontosaurus shimmers into existence, while a red-headed beer-chugging kid in a convertible drives toward it. When the kid drives through the shimmering dinosaur, his face dissolves in a very gory, eyeball-melting sequence by Earl Norum. Uh, when he gets to the other side, the kid is basically a skeleton. That point is moot, however, because the dinosaur starts tearing apart the bridge. And again, the brontosaurus is shown to be at least twice the size of the Verrazano Bridge. <laughs> it, it really should have been one-fifth the size of the bridge. And suddenly it sprouted paws. Like, they have, like, claws <laughs> on them. Like, they, in order yep. to peel it apart better, it's like, well, it suddenly changes all physi physiognomy. Uh... The carnage is brutal and constant here, with many scenes being lifted right from the trading cards, even providing more backstory for these images as if it really were needed. You know, like, we need to know that uh, a girl loved her dog before she got skewered by a uh, dinosaur. So yeah. uh, these panels outgore the original cards by a wide margin for the most part. Plus, there are word balloons of the victim screaming, which you don't get in the cards. Which actually mm -hmm. makes it way worse. It's like people going, ah, I'm cut in half, and you know, ah, my legs, you know. <laughs> uh, but really, if you've come this far to be reading the comic based on the trading card set, then this is probably what you expect. You really can't, you can't come here and be like, well, wait a second, that's offensive. Yeah. You know, it's, it's called Dinosaurs Attack for a reason, folks. Uh, also, pterodactyls swarm Washington, D.C. They're dashing people against the Washington and Lincoln memorials. And the military takes, makes a valiant effort to repel them, but uh, they fail and the pterosaurs take over. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, back on Prometheus, Elias Thorne has recovered. Professor Chambers is the interim boss of things, and she suggests everyone has to evacuate back to Earth, because the Prometheus life support systems are draining, you see. Uh, Elias promises Helen that Alice will be okay, because she's a born survivor? <laughs> That's the plan. That's it. She's yeah, born survivor. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the flu took her out, but, uh, <laughs> so, but if she dies, I, I guess... Uh, What's the worst that'll happen? She just falls short of his expectations. That's right. right. She's disappointed her own father and mother. That's all. <laughs> In death. <laughs> now, incidentally, we never hear about or from Alice again for the rest of the story. So she's fine. She's good. Yeah. And we, we can assume that this born survivor <laughs> did, in fact, survive. Uh, Bob Gowan welcomes the opportunity to report.
foot on the end of the of mankind. Ambrose says he will stay behind with Elias on the Prometheus for reasons, which uh, of course we will find out later. Uh, Helen also decides to hang around. You think she can let Elias go at this point, man? Woo, no she way. Is sprung. Uh, meanwhile, back <laughs> on Earth, the dinosaurs they are attacking. There's that wedding where the bride and groom are gored by a triceratops. There's an even gorier version of that. And the police station's taken over by a man-eating stegosaurus, uh, which is known to be an herbivore, but that doesn't stop it. Uh, and this isn't just happening in America, but all around the world. In London, England, for instance, a bunch of Brits have been skewered on the back of a spiny dinosaur that never actually existed. And uh, other places, presumably, the action mm. cuts right back to America pretty quickly. But, you know, it, it's happening elsewhere. And it's becoming more and more clear why Elias decided to stay. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> now, one scene has a dinosaur taking apart a skeleton at the Museum of Natural History. A scientist there says, I knew it! No feathers! And uh, this is a reference to the now widely accepted theory that many dinosaurs were the forebears of modern birds, and not lizards, as has been long assumed, and that many may have been feathered, in fact. But this guy thinks he's proven otherwise. He does indeed. Now, at one point, the dinosaur materializes on top of a man, and the man is embedded within its body. This mimics one of the cards in the set and references the Philadelphia Experiment, which is an alleged military experiment supposed to have been carried out by the U.S. Navy at the Philadelphia Naval, Naval Shipyard in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, sometime around October 28, 1943. Intended to be an early test in radar invisibility, it's said that the ship shimmered out of existence for a few minutes, then reappeared with some of the crew missing, and some members embedded into walls of the ship, screaming in pain before dying. In this instance, the man begs to be killed, and his friends, they, they, they help, they hook him up. Yeah. Uh, and then the dinosaur lumbers off, a dead man hanging limply from his torso. It's kind of, kind of like super, almost grosser than anything else, but all right. Right? Yeah. It's just a corpse hanging there. Uh, <laughs> now, on the Prometheus, Dr. Thorne is sleeping at his desk. That's a fine time for a nap, I'm sure. You know, nothing oh, important, yeah. nothing important is happening. Not on uh, the Prometheus. <laughs> no, that's true. Everything's fine. <laughs> uh, he dreams of when his brother Jory died, which is when he decided that the afterlife was bunk, and ergo, God does not exist. Then he's awoken by a humanoid dinosaur that wants to teach Elias about his culture. Elias assumes he's dreaming, so he's a good sport about this development. I'm not so sure that we're not dreaming this sure whole thing. Sure feels like this a dream. Yeah. <laughs> now, so it seems like this dinosaur man is the evolved form of dinosaurs, if, you know, they haven't gone abruptly extinct as they did on our Earth. They're similar to humans, but do not know right from wrong because they have no souls and are therefore inherently evil. Oh! <laughs> That's how that works. Right. Uh, now, the, the dinosaur race worships a malicious god that wants to put dinosaurs back in the saddle on Earth. And this is the this is the being that infected Elias's dreams and messed with his time scan. Elias wakes up again and suddenly knows what he must do, which is turn on the time scan for a second time. Sure, if a little is good, a lot must be better. That's how that works. That's, that is how that works. <laughs> now, after Elias Thorne wiggles some doohickeys and twaddles some whatchamacallits, the time scan will act like a vacuum... And get this, it'll yank the offensive time period out of existence. 
Which uh, would include the murderous dinosaurs, one would hope. We would hope, yeah. Not just the insects and the swamps, but the actual killing things. Attacking things, yeah. yes. Uh, meanwhile, Bob Gowan has made it back to the Channel 3 broadcasting studio in Ohio, where everyone is freaking out and are preparing to flee because they're smart. Uh, Bob says they have a duty to present the news to the public, and he has, this is absolutely no effect on anything. So everyone's still leaving, so he says, I'm going to need some help. Uh, while dinosaurs continue killing children on Earth, Dr. Rubin and Professor Thorne are making the fixes they need to reverse time scan. This actually requires them to spacewalk, but it doesn't really seem like a big deal to them. I guess they do it all the time. Uh, inside Prometheus, Helen and Ambrose muse about whether it was this mysterious dinosaur god or Elias's own telekinetic abilities that started time scan running. And if it was Elias himself, can anyone trust him? Ambrose tells Helen that when the time comes, she will know what to do. Didn't anyone else see those evil, gigantic eyes and the hideous laughter? How could Elias have done that? Yeah. He, he had a heart attack. He had a heart attack, for Christ's sake. Don't you give him an out on that? You know, what do you think? He faked that whole thing? It's a, he's a cardiac ventriloquist. <laughs> uh, now, the uh, U.S. military engages the dinosaurs head on, and they actually manage to hold their own for a little while. There are lots of scenes of dinosaurs being blown to actual bits by grenades and rockets and whatnot. The dinosaurs eventually overwhelm them. Uh, there are also casualties due to exploding dinosaurs. It's, it's hilarious, like skew, people getting skewered with dinosaur homes uh, and, and you know, the, uh, the uh, claws and stuff. It's crazy. Now, two impossible dinosaurs that never existed grab a general by two ends and pull him apart. In retaliation, three soldiers kill a dinosaur and plant an American flag in its back, <laughs> like the infamous scene at Iwo Jima during World War II. Oh, God, I almost saluted uh, to that battle. The classics, yeah. yeah. Uh, from the carnage, a female soldier rescues a newly born pink dinosaur, which is uh, kind of weird, to be honest. Yeah, nothing really comes of this. It's like, oh, no, okay. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's a hope, hope grows I eternal. I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Back on Prometheus, having decided Elias is being controlled by evil, Ambrose decides and prepares to murder him with a pistol. So uh, I guess we're not waiting for Helen to know what to do anymore, huh? We're just going to go ahead and uh, do We're just plan B. Yeah, we'll get rid of Helen. Uh, watching in a mirror, however, uh, Ambrose sees the evil eyes of that dinosaur god, and then Ambrose dies. Uh, Helen and Elias come to the central chamber It looked like they came back from dinner or something They're just kind of walking and <laughs> chatting And they find everyone there dead of a heart attack Elias can feel the ominous pressure Of this dinosaur god closing in And somehow knows Ambrose is dead And that's enough for Helen to go to Ambrose's chambers And retrieve his pistol Like, uh, buddy, uh, you're kind of weird <laughs> uh, Back at Channel 3 Studios Bob Gowan is broadcasting by himself uh, I'm not even sure the cameras are running it, But it doesn't matter since no one is watching You know, the right? world is in decision <laughs> Uh, suddenly, people storm the studio and warn that a dinosaur is coming, and one comes right in. It eats a couple of people, but another newscaster named Roger Moskowitz stuns it with a Klieg light, and it falls out of the building. Uh, there's supposed to have been some animosity between Roger and Bob. You remember him talking about the national news, like, let him? Yeah. And then there was he wasn't allowed to... But it, it really didn't make it into the series. Like this, 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 this whole uh, <laughs> personality, this whole thing between them. Uh, but this is the scene where they reconcile. So we we missed a whole thing where they were supposed to be enemies. But this is where they get. I think there was a tie-in. We just didn't maybe get the maybe there was a whole other newscaster uh, <laughs> series we didn't read. Now back on Promethea, Helen is about to shoot Elias, but is too overcome by her love to actually do so. Elias wonders if all of this is his fault and starts to feel guilty. Yeah, pretty much is, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, basically. Back on Earth, three kids kill a dinosaur with a bazooka they picked up off a serviceman's corpse. Now, this scene mimics one of the more memorable cards in that set. Helen and Elias are almost done with their calibrations on Prometheus. They're about to pop time scan, and Elias is ready to shoot himself in the head. Then he decides that no part of that evil god is inside him, uh, and that none of this is his fault. Okay. Now the dinosaur god reaches through the view screen and snatches Elias up like a G.I. Joe action figure. It's like, a, it's really gra- it's like a, the King Kong movie. You just reach yep. it in and just grab it. Uh, and here, we get a good look at this dinosaur god, and oh, it is so stupid. He's a <laughs> six-eyed beast with bat wings, a horn for a nose, and scaly plates that make him look like a cut-rate thing uh, from mm. Marvel Comics. Uh, I mean, this, this sort of is like a, a worse version of Trigon. I feel it's like, and, and Trigon yeah. looks pretty silly when we get done. He looks awful too, yeah. So uh, through the view screen, Elias implores Helen to run time scan and end this horror, even though he will be killed in the process. This is also from one of the more memorable and miserable cards in the series, the only one with a photograph of Professor Elias Thorne. You can see that over on BobHefner.com. Uh, time scan runs and it rips the dinosaurs out of the present day, and we mean rips like skin right from the skeletons of these things, like rips it right <laughs> off. Uh, it's really quite comical. An ankylosaurus has its eyes pulled out, and a plesiosaur attacking a submarine has its guts pulled out from underwater. It's really gross. Mm. Anyway, the dinosaur god destroys Prometheus. Elias sacrifices himself, and Helen gets away on an escape craft. And it all ends happily ever after. Mm. Now, the back ma- the back matter of this trade collection is pretty cool, too, because uh, some card designs, and it's uh, also got a couple of notes from Gary Garani. Uh, one explains the history of this project, and the other just sort of muses about the trading cards in general, including those uh, Mars Attacks ones as well. Yeah. Uh, and there's a full comic uh, based on many of the cards from the set in the back. Uh, it's, it's a really nice package uh, if this is something that's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, if, I'll tell you, if this came with... Uh, the whole the whole set of cards too is like printed as sheets or something oh, like sure. that. Oh, I would I would tell everyone to run down and get this because it would just be a really a totally complete package like that. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, but anyway, despite the company's hopes, that would be Topps cards. Uh, Dinosaurs Attack did not achieve commercial success in nineteen ninety in nineteen eighty eight. Uh, or in 2014, come to think of it. Uh, Director Tim Burton was planning on making a movie version, but dismissed it when Jurassic Park was released in 1993, and instead he made Mars Attacks in 1996. That's kind of how that happened. Uh, To Mondo-Digital.com, Gary Garani said, I remember one of the first things I tried to do was a sequel to the legendary Mars Attacks, but they pulled out the sales figures. It bombed, but it became a major cult item. Originally, there was a controversy because of the violence. The concluding idea was a sci-fi set wouldn't sell, but the gross humor stuff would. I finally managed to sell them on an original sci-fi series when dinosaurs became popular in the 1980s. Unlike Mars Attacks, which was handled totally straight, Dinosaur's Attack combines heavy melodrama with some satire and over-the-top humor, which stems directly from the outrageous uh, concept itself. Dinosaurs are alive again and are chomping their way through our fatuous society. The problem when a filmmaker tackles this sort of thing is the temptation to do an out-and-out farce instead of allowing the laughs to flow naturally from the exaggerated situations. 
Tim Burton licensed Dinosaur's Attack that at the same time he got the right to rights to Mars Attacks, and it was clearly his intention to do a send-up of uh, Ed Wood-type movies that he had just finished up that movie bio as well. Joe Dante had also optioned the property. Dinosaur's Attack predates the Jurassic Park novel, which eventually derailed Joe's project, and he was preparing to go in a funny direction as well. Uh, Gary thinks that these overly humorous takes would have killed the franchise, but... The point seems to be moot since neither project happened and the franchise is essentially dead anyway. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Now, with uh, with all that said here, uh, let's take a look at uh, the, the a brief history of uh, gory trading cards. You know, these uh, these books were the, these cards were very gory. Yeah. Uh, now, though we rarely mention it, much of the history of trading cards goes hand in hand with the history of comic books. Both of them being cheap printed collectibles purchased at a local candy store or newsstand. Indeed, if we're talking dollar amounts, the world of trading cards is way more lucrative than comic books. And uh, when the market for comics is in an upswing, you can bet that the market for cards is even higher than that. Definitely, yeah. Mm. Now, trading cards began uh, first as trade cards, which were passed between European and American businessmen in the 17th century. They were business cards, more or less, but they were often very ornate and might contain a map to a location of said business since uh, literacy was not quite so widespread. Uh, trade cards would be collected and sometimes displayed in offices, a measure of their finery as well as to provide some unsubtle name-dropping. Yeah, one thing people like to affix, affix to their trade cards were uh, large peacock feathers. Which okay. may, must have made them very easy to carry around in your wallet, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so during the mid-19th century in the, in the United States, baseball and photo photography were both gaining in popularity. Baseball clubs would pose for groups and individual pictures, and some of these photographs were printed onto small cards similar to modern wallet photos. As baseball increased in popularity and became a professional sport during the late 1860s, trade cards featuring baseball players appeared, and these were used by a variety of companies to promote their business, even if their products being advertised had no connection with baseball. Uh, but an example that's not like that is in 1868, Peck and Snyder, a sporting goods store in New York, began producing trade cards featuring baseball teams. Peck and Snyder sold baseball equipment, and in this case, the cards were a natural advertising vehicle. The Peck and Snyder cards are sometimes considered the first sports cards, but still trade cards, not trading cards. And that difference mm. will be is very subtle and silly, but we'll talk we'll say what it is in a moment. <laughs> Certainly. Now the first things we would really consider trading cards were cigarette cards. These cards were intended to stiffen cigarette packs to protect the butts and to advertise the brand. Beginning in 1875, cards depicting actresses, baseball players, Indian chiefs, boxers, national flags, or wild animals were issued by the U.S.-based Allen & Ginter Tobacco Company. Other brands soon follow suit, followed suit. They first emerged in the U.S. and the U.K. then, uh, eventually in many other countries. In 1893, John Player & Sons Tobacco Company uh, produced one of the first general interest sets, being Castles and Abbeys, which was numbered and thus created a collectible that could be traded for missing cards. It's so such a small thing, but suddenly it was like by putting a number on it, you give you put a seed in someone's yeah. mind. I have to have all of these. You know what I mean? I it's like before that, that yeah. no one even thought about it. But suddenly, uh, most of the baseball cards around the beginning of the 20th century were in candy and tobacco products. It was during this era that most valuable baseball card ever printed was produced. The infamous tobacco card featuring Honus Wagner from a set called T206. So. 
you find that one, don't throw it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1933, Gowdy Gum Company of Boston issued baseball cards with players' biographies on the backs, and this was the first to put baseball cards in bubble gum. Uh, Bowman Gum of Philadelphia issued its first baseball cards in 1948. In 1938, Gum Incorporated introduced a set of cards called Horrors of War, which is considered the first gory card, and we did mention that when uh, Elias Thorne was pointing to those seeds, one of the first one was a yeah. Horrors of War card. This was a huge set at 288 cards divided into two series. The original set had 240 cards that focused on the Spanish Civil War, Ethiopian War, and the Chinese-Japanese War, and the final 48 cards came later as a supplemental release. And among these latter cards are three that show Adolf Hitler, who was now a threat to the world in, like, in 1935 or so. Hmm. Uh, it's said that the trading cards got an endorsement from President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who allegedly used the cards to show people some of the horrific things Things that were happening overseas. We jump ahead to 1950. The Topps Chewing Gum started to sell gum and cards in a package, with such topics as TV and film cow- uh, TV and film cowboy Hopalong Cassidy got Bring 'Em Back Alive cards, which featured uh, Frank Buck on uh, big game hunts in Africa, and also the All American Football card. The following year, they began producing baseball cards, and after purchasing their competitor, Bowman Gum, in 1956, they became a leader in collectible sports cards. And here's where the cosmic treadmill is going to veer into a tangent, because the history of sports cards is huge and fascinating, and is definitely covered extensively by more knowledgeable and interesting people than the two of us. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) It's huge, but we we couldn't even do it a... We couldn't even do it a disservice to be talking about it, yeah. For sure. Now, Topps began life as a tobacco importer, the American Leaf Tobacco, which is founded by Morris Shoren. Uh, distribution lines from Turkey became complicated during and after World War One, requiring more capital to navigate. And after a financial hit during the Great Depression, Shoren's sons, uh, Shoren's sons, Abram, Ira, Philip, and Joseph, they decided to take advantage of the company's existing distribution channels, but to focus on a new product, chewing gum. They relaunched the company as Tops, with the name uh, meant to indicate that it would be the Tops in its field. Very clever, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tops' most successful early product was Bazooka Bubblegum, which was packaged with a small comic on the wrapper, and it still is, we think. I haven't seen any in a long it's time. It's not. It's not? It's why not. would they, why I, would they I, take actually, those out? Two weeks ago, I bought a pack of it, and there is no comic anymore. Well, it's just, it's like... It's like a web a link to a website, and you don't even get a comic if you go there. So, you, so all you get is bad gum. All you get is awful gum. Inferior, almost unchewable gum. I'm sorry, Bazooka mm-hmm. and Tops, not a good move. But anyway, <laughs> as stated, they started to slip cards in with the gum beginning in 1950, and before long, the cards became the focus, which is good because their gum is terrible. Uh, the United States Civil War centennial celebration was still going strong in 1962 when Tops produced a set of cards titled The Civil War. The cards were the idea of Len Brown and Woody Gelman, and Gelman recalled that earlier sets of card. Gelman recalled that earlier set of cards called Horrors of War, which had made a large impact because of the graphic violence. Because of the title of the newspaper-like journals on the backs of these cards, the set is more commonly known as Civil War News. Uh, it's always a blaring headline like "Bridge Explodes" or "Union Soldiers Skewered" to describe what's happening on the front of the card. 
Uh, the set had 88 cards and 17 pieces of Confederate currency, and these cards featured often bloody but always ahistorical accounts from the Civil War. Even the Confederate currency was totally made up, not even designed <laughs> on real Confederate currency. Wow. Uh, the names, places, aside from appearances by Jefferson Davis, Ulysses Grant, and Lincoln, are all fabricated, <laughs> and the set was painted by the legendary Norm Saunders, who provided some of the best-known covers for 1950s pulp magazines. Now, finding the business of gory cards to be quite lucrative, that same year, Topps produced Mars Attacks. That's 55 full-color cards depicting Martians destroying humanity with lasers and giant robots and insects. Uh, product developer Len Brown, inspired by Wally Wood's cover for EC Comics' Weird Science number well, 16, that had a November 1952 cover date, he pitched the idea to, Will, uh, to Woody Gelman. Gelman and Brown created the story, with Brown writing the copy and uh, creating rough sketches. They enlisted Wally Wood to flesh out the sketches and Bob Powell to finish them. Then Norman Saunders painted the whole set. The cards, which sold for five cents per pack of five, were test marketed by Topps through the dummy corporation Bubbles Incorporated, under the name Attack from Space. Sales were sufficient to expand the marketing, and the name was changed then to Mars Attacks. This is doubtlessly the most popular of the gory trading card series, uh, depicting bubble-helmeted Martians eviscerating and torturing humans and animals alike, plus uh, lots of heaving bosoms and implied sexual content yeah, there, as well. A bit that, of that didn't hurt. No. Yeah. Now, the card sparked parental and community <laughs> outrage, and Topps responded initially by repainting 13 of the cards to reduce the gore and sexuality. Inquiries from a Connecticut district attorney, however, caused Topps to halt production of the series altogether before the replacements could even be printed. But Mars Attacks would have a second life, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and comics and cards from Mars Attacks are still produced even to this day. Yeah. And uh, when and when we cover one of the comics, we will tell you all about that right then. <laughs> That's right, because boy, that is definitely its own. That's its own thing. Long <laughs> story. But in 1965, Topps put out the Battle Card Set, which had 66 cards and 25 cloth stickers. This was a more direct heir to the original Horrors of War set that inspired the other gory trading card set. And except for numbers 54 through 66, which are types of servicemen, generals, statesmen, and two checklist cards, the typical color painting of this series depicts a violent World War II scene in realistic detail, often in deadly aerial plane battles. Uh, there's, there's one, though. God, Chris, I could never forget it. It's like an officer ushering a little girl while a plane follows behind them, shooting... Just oh, up the, it's so, it's really stark uh, <laughs> uh, The backs of the cards were orange and white And provided more detail on whatever was happening on the front Along with a drawing of a serviceman running toward the reader uh, Best were the cloth patches Which emulated actual U.S. military patches Though with badly offset printing uh, Kids were expected to slap these on their clothing And advance to the rank of sergeant immediately, uh, I guess <laughs> uh, This set, while arguably the grossest of these three Topps card sets of the 1960s Didn't sell very well or even raise the ire of parents groups uh, Perhaps the two things actually go hand in hand Come to think of it hmm. uh, Thus ended the Gory Cards partnership Of Len Brown, Woody Gelman, and Norm Saunders Though it is worth mentioning that Saunders Painted the 1966 Batman trading card set Based on the television series Which is a set that is highly prized today And uh, that was that Of course, until Dinosaurs Attack In 1988 And we told you about that, so that's all, folks Hey, hold on a second I... I... 
Back when we did Miracle Man, didn't we find out that Eclipse Comics had uh, serial killer trading cards? That's right. McFarlane wound up those. Well, they, they had four sets of cards. They were called True Crime, one through four, uh, beginning in 1992. Though the backs of these cards could be very explicit in describing violent crimes, the fronts were mostly just portraits of the criminals themselves and never of a murder scene or something gory. Uh, still, the sets were exoriated by the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly at the time, which is probably why they had four sets of them, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, but when Eclipse folded in 95, as we've said, Todd McFarlane wound up with all the goods and who knows what happened then. True. What about, what about them garbage pail kids? Come on, you think a bunch of snot and fart jokes can compete with a dinosaur eating children in a classroom? Come on, I it's not even close. Not, uh, but I'll tell you, we may end up discussing these one day because they have a strong connection to comic books. Mm-hmm. That I won't be revealing right now, and we won't be watching the Garbage Fill Kids movie either. That is not what we're about. Uh, but if you would like to write to uh, Bliss Chris and uh, Wedgie Reggie over here and uh, talk to us about uh, you know any of these things, trading cards, or maybe school us on sports cards even a little bit, very little bit, please, or please. talk about the comic that we read, please write to us at Weird Comics History at gmail.com. I got to draw, I got to name drop again. You really, if you're interested in what we've talked about here, you got to go over to bobhefner.com. It's a very old school site. It's got a, it's got a, you know, you'll, you'll see when you get there, but it's, it's the only site I can think of that has almost every card front and back mm-hmm. of pretty much everything we've talked about. Plus other things that are just of his interest. This is back when websites used to be things people like to remember. Uh, (laughs) And we do have a Patreon. If you like what we do, head on over to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. Chip in five bucks and get three exclusive shows a month, including Cosmic Treadmill After Dark, which is known to get a bit blue, would you say, right? A little bit blue. A yeah. little bit blue. <laughs> you can follow us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History. You can find us on Instagram at Cosmic T-Mill. Same thing on Twitter. We're at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out some new... Uh, I, I always get this wrong. <laughs> you can check out some discussion of new DC Comics uh, in audio and reading form over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. Uh, and you're still doing your Lois's, or Someday are they coming back soon? I will get back to them. Actually, this month <laughs> is very likely. It's been a tough month to, to do a Lois, but things are about Certainly. to open up in March. So expect to see at least uh, one or two coming this month, but... All the news, all the new DC stuff is over there, mm-hmm. and uh, all the old DC stuff is over at ChrisInfiniteEarths.com, <laughs> where for a long time you reviewed a different DC comic every day of the week, and for the last mm-hmm. few weeks it's been the deep dives into issues of Action Comics Weekly, uh, spread out over a week, and I'm telling you, it's going to be huge when this is all done in uh, <laughs> 2025. It's going to be tremendous. Uh, no, it's, it's it's really a great repository. If you've ever been curious about those or other DC comics, get on over to ChrisInfiniteEarth.com, and he has dissected books like a real uh, Japanese chef. Uh, and, of course, <laughs> our show site where you can find our archives and all our shows uh, you can listen to in some kind of order, or at least search for the right ones instead of our yeah. crazy Podbean feed is on chrisandreggie.com. We have show notes. We have more information, sometimes pictures. Uh, you never know what you'll find over there, so head on over and check it out. And while you're there, you might see a flashy uh, banner there for 80stees.com. You could uh, head over there, buy yourself some gear, and uh, helps them out, helps us out, and it'll... Uh, It'll keep you. Uh, it'll keep you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And so uh, fashionable too, boy. Wee. All year round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do it. 
Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill mesozoically. See ya. Say oops upside your head. 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 I'm back at you again. Radio station is up. WGAP. Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Now on all you gappers and you finger snappers, you toe tappers. And you love laughing. I want y'all to say this with me. Say it loud.